Today's scripture passage is from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 1, verses 4 to 10, and chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice one with another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place. And the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. The word of the Lord. So if you were to look on the back of your bulletin today, it would say that the, the lesson is being given by Matt Anderson, um, but he forgot, and so I just happened to have something prepared and ready to go. No, it was this beautiful moment where he knocks on the door at about 8.15 and says, Dave, you're preaching today, right? And there was this temptation to just go, no, what, what are you talking about? It's all on you. That is like a preacher's literal worst nightmare, that you come unprepared and you have to get up and say something. In which case, you just go, you get up there and you go, you know what, guys, that's a great, but what does it say to you? 
And then you go, let's break into small groups and discuss. And like that, if, if that ever happens, you'll know that something terrible has happened behind the scenes. That is, that's a telltale, a telltale sign. And so this, this morning, what we've been doing this fall is we've been doing this series called Committed, and we're following something called the Narrative Lectionary, which was this series of readings that was developed at Luther Seminary to cover a four-year, it's, it's a four-year cycle of readings. And, and what they want to do is, is take congregations on this journey through Scripture where you're st- touching on the great stories and, and the great themes um, of God's word. And so, you know, we started this fall in Genesis with Abraham, and, and we got to Exodus and Moses and the Ten Commandments and crossing the Red Sea, and we spent a little bit of time with those great kings, David and Solomon. But, but last week and this week, we're, we're getting something that's overlooked so often in our study of Scripture, and really that was central to the formation of the canon of Scripture, of the Old Testament itself, and that is the reality of exile. And exile is a much more difficult story because the earlier stories in the Bible, they all seem to like be leading somewhere with a happy ending. And so, you know, God calls Abraham and it's this great leap of faith, but guess what? At the end, he gets a child and he gets this promised land. He gets this vision. He's going to have all this land. And, and Moses goes down and he rescues the Israelites from slavery and the Egyptians drown in the Red Sea and they go to Mount Sinai. I mean, it, these are good things. Bad things are happening, but they all seem to have this happy ending. And exile is much more ambiguous. And so the the big, thick books, the major prophets at the end of our Old Testaments, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they're all speaking into this reality of exile, of a people who have been sent away from this place where they thought they would be forever uh, because of their unfaithfulness to God, and and they're in these varying states of return. And so the great question in all this is, is how can God send his people away into exile and at the same time remain committed to? to them? How can God send them out of the land? How can God allow his temple to be destroyed? And how can he still then use this people to bless the world? And what does it look like to live as a committed person when you don't have a land, when you don't have a temple? How do you live as a committed person? And so those questions are the questions that the prophet sought to answer. And always, 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 they weren't just warning God's people, they were also always calling them back to faithfulness. And that call resounds today just as it did millennia ago. And so before we get started with our specific texts, we we have to set Jeremiah and and his prophetic ministry in context. By the time he was born, the northern kingdom of Israel with its capital in Samaria had already been completely destroyed and its leaders sent away into exile. And they were destroyed by the great world power of its day, Assyria. So Matt preached last week on this passage from Isaiah where one of the Assyrian military leaders gets up and stands before Jerusalem and basically announces to them, resistance is futile. You thought, you think your God's going to save you? Well, what about all the other people and their gods? He's saying, don't don't trust your king. Don't trust that message. The end is nigh. And so, you know, repent and submit to the king of Assyria. But then in this miraculous turn of events, Jerusalem is spared. The kingdom of Judah is spared. And so some 50 years after that, Jeremiah was born. And and his ministry took place, though, in, in this world of great tumult and chaos. Judah was yet again a pawn on the chessboard of these great regional powers. Because when he was born, Assyria had fallen, and now Babylon rose to power. And with that, Egypt 
tried to gain influence over these scraps that were left of the Assyrian Empire that included Judah. And so there's this struggle going on between Egypt and, and Babylon over who gets to control this kingdom. In the global pond of its day, Judah is this minnow wondering which fish it should swim next to that promises not to eat it. Or to switch metaphors, you know, which mafia boss should they align themselves with and pay protection money to? It's not an enviable position that they find themselves in, but that's where they are. And so Jeremiah's ministry, it spans 40 years. He had a long, long ministry. And, and, and at the end of his ministry, Judah eventually falls. And in the end, Jerusalem is overrun by the Babylonians. The temple is utterly destroyed. The best and the brightest get shipped away as exiles to Babylon. And so Jeremiah, he lived and he ministered in what were tumultuous times. The world around him was unstable. The cultural, political, social, social landscape was constantly shifting. And throughout it, he had this message that he never wavered from. That, that political alliances, religious compromises and syncretism, uh, none of the ideology, ideological or theological slogans that they had were going to save God's people. Only absolute trust and fidelity to the Lord. That's all that matters. Everything else is futile and will lead down a road to destruction. And Jeremiah was constantly warning God's people of the dangers that were ahead. And so you can imagine how popular this made him to the powers that be. Those with a vested interest in the status quo. To everyone who said, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. Things might be bad, but we've got God on our side. So everything is going to work out in the end. And we know what it's like to live in tumultuous times. For whatever reason, a host of reasons, that the, the world around us, it, it feels unstable. I'm not exactly sure why that is. I mean, uh, for those of you who lived through the 1960s, I feel like the 2010s have nothing on that. You know, there was a time in our country's history when there was, you know, hundreds of bombings happening every year, when, when, when great cultural, political, religious figures were being assassinated Regularly, I can't imagine what it would be like to live through a time such as that. But still, 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 the world feels like it's, it's, it's shifting beneath our feet or things are cracking and we're uncertain if, if the foundations will hold. There's this great sense that, that we're sorting further and further apart. You know, we have, we have blue, blue states and red, red states. And there's this question of, well, if we hate each other, what's going to hold us together? But I'd say right now that that's basically a feeling. It's, it's, it's an intuition. There is this, this waiting for the other shoe to drop, but, but so far it hasn't. But I think there is an institution, an area of, of American cultural life where this, this, this tumult, this shifting, this, this change is real. And it's something that's happened so slowly that, that we might not even realize it if we don't stop and think about it. But where it, there's a place where our world is as, um, has experienced as much upheaval and uncertainty and, and what came before can't stand, but what lies in the future is uncertain. And, and that has to do with the American church. And the Star Tribune has been doing this occasional series, this wonderful um, series recently called Tests of Faith. 
And they've just been periodically looking at how Christianity in, in the state of Minnesota, but in our country as a whole, are, are at a crossroads. And how without even noticing it, with, within a generation, really, the, the religious landscape has changed dramatically. There are now more religiously unaffiliated Americans than all the mainline Protestant traditions combined. And their share, the, the nuns, uh, share of the population, has doubled since the 1990s. That's just 20 years. More than a third of, of my generations, the millennials, have no religious affiliation. And, and for baby boomers, that number is just 17%. And even for the off-maligned Gen Xers, it's just 23%. Congregations are struggling, churches are closing and merging, pastors are driving Ubers and Lyfts just to make ends meet. This is this slow motion catastrophe. And so the world is changing before our very eyes. These are trying and, and troubling times, and in times such as these, Jeremiah makes for a good companion because he ministered faithfully for decades in such a situation, and it wasn't easy, and he wasn't popular, and he did not like it. He was not a happy camper as he was, as he was serving God, but he did it anyway. Why did he do it? He went through a lot of stuff. You know, his family tried to kill him, betrayed him. The, the king threw him into prison as, as the Babylonians were closing in on Jerusalem. So maybe he was hoping that the Babylonians would win so he wouldn't get killed. So why did he do it? And to understand why he did it, we have to turn to our first part of the passage in Jeremiah's call. And so the reason that he did it, and this is simple, this is not rocket science, but it, it, we can say safely that it was all God's fault. Look at verse 5. The subject of those verbs is God. God says, I formed you before you were born. I knew you. More than that, I, 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 I consecrated you. I set you apart for it. Appointed you a prophet to the nations. So it seems as though Jeremiah didn't really have a choice in the matter. His life was no accident. His calling was no accident. His mission and his ministry were all no accident. God was and, in, was and is behind it all. And so we can say, well, this is true for Jeremiah, you know, he's sort of a special person with a special job at a special moment in the history of God's people. But what does that have to do with the rest of us? Now, this is a, a Protestant congregation. So there's one thing we want to hold on to from that. I want to hold on to it. It's this priesthood of all believers that each and every one of us has a ministry that, that God has placed a call on our lives when we place our trust in Jesus Christ. That's what we did with baptizing Abraham. Say, he belongs to God's people, and, and more than just belonging, he's going to have a vocation, he's going to have a ministry, he's going to have a mission as well. And so while we might not have the same particular calling as Jeremiah, and I hope I don't have one like his, we have the same God behind it all. And so behind Jeremiah's call is this idea of predestination, that God had a plan beforehand that now Jeremiah is just becoming aware of, and of the role that he will play in it. And predestination has always been a real theological sticking point. It's sort of a sticky wicket because it gets at all of these really important uh, pressure points and understanding of, of our relationship to God and God's agency and our agency, right? Our own free will, what choice do we have 
in the matter, and, and how much does God just, you know, sort of do things in advance, and we don't get any choice? This question, does God decide, you know, who's in and who's out from before the foundation of the world, as it were? But beyond idle speculation about that kind of stuff, uh, predestination was always supposed to properly function as a word of assurance in the face of fear and anxiety. Right? When we are faced uh, uh, of situations that make us afraid, this understanding that, don't worry, God knows what he's doing is supposed to bring great hope and great comfort. That this isn't an accident. That God isn't sort of going like, oh, I didn't know that was, I'm sorry, Jeremiah, I didn't know that was going to happen. I called you. I didn't know you were going to get thrown in a pit. Know that God has this. God has got this. God is with you. That's what that means. And Jeremiah hears this from God and he objects. He says, I can't do this. I'm just a young man. I don't have any qualifications. Nobody is going to listen to me. And he's right. He's right. But it doesn't matter because it's not about his qualifications. It's about his faithfulness to his mission. And more than, and more than that, it's about God's presence with him. None of us are up to the task of being God's kingdom-bearing people in the world. We're not that special, not that great, not that smart. Right? We're, we're selfish, we're fickle, we're human beings. But the message of God to Jeremiah applies to all of us who belong to God through Jesus Christ. None of that matters as long as God is with us. And so in times of great uncertainty and great challenge for the church, I need that assurance that God has gone before me and that God is with me that God has a plan and a purpose, that this isn't an accident or a mistake, but that God has got this and God knows what he's up to, even and especially when I don't. So God tells Jeremiah, don't be afraid of them, for I am with you. And these two words belong together. Don't be afraid, I am with you. Because Jeremiah is going to have lots and lots and lots and lots of reasons to be afraid. And we all are. He's going to face opposition from his family, the political leaders of his country. The city that he knows and loves, the temple where he worships, all of that is going to get swept away by the greatest foreign power of its day. Right? It would be like being American and, and living in Washington, D.C. in the War of 1812. You see the, the White House burning to the ground. And you could understand, oh, geez, uh, what kind of future do we have? You would be very afraid. But the reason he has to not be afraid in the midst of all this is this promise that God is with, is with him, which in Scripture doesn't mean that he's going to feel okay and warm and fuzzy through the midst of it all or that everything is going to, to work out just how he hopes it does. It just means that God will protect him and see his purposes through. Jeremiah and we can be sure of that always, that in the end our hope rests not in ourselves, but that in the end God wins and there's nothing we can do about it. So Jeremiah gets this call. But then we get to see in chapter 7 this sermon of how he lives out that call. And to call it a sermon is giving it sort of a formality that it, it probably didn't have. Basically, Jeremiah was like a, a street preacher. He went to the gates of the temple, he stood up, and he announced this message. And I can imagine that as a street preacher... They were, Jeremiah, you know, was just as popular as street preachers are in our own day, right? Which is to say very. Whenever we hear someone standing up on a soapbox, we go, oh, I wonder what interesting thing this person has to share. 
I'm sure it's some delightful insight from the Lord. No, 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 no. You go, who is this jerk? Shut up. I'm just trying to go into the temple, and you're bothering me with this business? But Jeremiah couldn't help it. This word is like a fire burning inside of him that just has to get out whether people are willing to listen to it or not. And his message is essentially, you're going to worship, but this place is rotten. This whole system is rotten to its core. That you, 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 You've come here and you've, you've come to trust in the ritual and the building and, and not the God who has promised to inhabit it. The prophets are always, this is a common theme with them, they're always saying, people, you have replaced the inner power of your faith for these outward appearances, the outward forms. And it's important for us to understand that the temple itself at this point, it had come to have almost this talismanic significance for God's people, especially in Jerusalem. There was this temple ideology that said, well, because God had promised to dwell there in Jerusalem, you know, that no matter what happens around them, they were invincible. It would never be destroyed. I mean, just a little more than 100 years before, as I said, the Assyrians were right there, and they hadn't been able to take Jerusalem, so they thought, you know what? We're safe. We will be spared. And so the people of God, they had learned exactly the wrong lesson from this. They had thought that it meant that they were invulnerable, not that they had been spared out of God's mercy and that they had been given time and space to reform their behavior. And so when Jeremiah warned them about the catastrophe that loomed ahead, they would just repeat, plug their ears and repeat this mantra, sort of like, la, 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 la. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah goes, listen, the Babylonians are going to come. You're going to go into exile. God's going to destroy this place. They go, buddy, this is the temple of the Lord. We are invincible and invulnerable. All they had to do was keep going through the motions. And as religious people, we too are vulnerable to hiding behind the same kind of shibboleths that Jeremiah's audience did that day. And on the meaning of this passage for contemporary significance, I love what one commentator wrote. He said, if we are to preach what Jeremiah preached, what might his words attack today? His point was that there was something that the people were convinced was a truth that they could rely on but which had become, in fact, a deception, a complacent and dangerously false sense of security. It is a temptation that is still with us and may apply to a range of things, words and traditions we like to repeat for the feeling they give us of secure orthodoxy, but without lies to match. Places, organizations, and institutions we have come to think of as having a charmed permanence, even if they have long passed their usefulness to God's kingdom. Causes, convictions, positions that God has blessed in the past but have turned into shibboleths or gained a kind of sanctity that none dare challenge. Once great truths can turn into deception when they generate a security that is not grounded in a living and obedient response to God in the present. And it's that last line that stings. Once great truths can turn into deception when they generate a security that is not grounded in a living an obedient response to God in the present. And, and, and I read that and it rings so true for my experience uh, of the institution, the church institutions in America that have, have shaped me. You know, I think of the denomination that I grew up in and it's part of this ministry co-op we have here, the, the, the PCUSA, and you think, you know, in 1965 there was 4.25 million members. You know, it was good to be a Protestant in America in, in, in post World War II life. But now it's 
million people, and, and the median congregation has less than 50 people in attendance on a given Sunday, and churches are struggling to, to pay their pastors and keep the loof from reeking, leaking. And I go to meetings all the time where church leaders get together, and, and you know how much time we spend talking about this reality? Zero, none at all. Folks ought to be rending their garments and wondering, what can we do? What is going on? And instead, what I hear is the equivalent of, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Things will keep going because they have. I think of the seminary where I went, Princeton Theological Seminary, a place that I love. But it's an institution with a billion-dollar endowment and like 500 students. So do the math on that. That's like a lot of money for every single student that you have every year. And one of the worst things that can happen to someone is to have too much money so that you're insulated from the realities of everyday life. And so here we were. We were being educated and formed for a church that no longer exists. We were ill-prepared as alumni. We were being sent out to pastor churches like, like lambs before a slaughter. And all we heard when we were there was, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. You go to Miller Chapel. It's this beautiful chapel on campus. There's no boiler issues at Miller Chapel. <laughs> There's no plaster falling down from the roof. There's no plumbing issues at all. You know? The president isn't going, geez, well, I wonder, you know, am I going to be able to get my paycheck this month? Or should we, you know, maybe look into doing this other thing? No, 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 no. There was enough, plenty more than enough to go around. So you're insulated from the reality. And just because there's been a ministry presence here for more than 100 years, it doesn't mean that it has to carry on forever. The unthinkable can easily happen. And the answer when faced with the challenges of doing and being church in the 21st century isn't to recite some meaningless mantra. Our institutional legacy won't save us. Denominational affiliations won't save us. Theological hobby horses won't save us. Only God and Jesus Christ can save us. And our responsibility is to live as faithfully as we can lives together that reflect the gospel. And what's so powerful about Jeremiah's sermon is it's not that he has some terribly complicated or deep theological message. It's actually really simple. People, there is a massive disconnect between what you claim to believe and how you are actually living your lives. And so you can't hide behind this building or behind our, our history or some theological slogans. You've got to actually believe this stuff and live it out. And that's the challenge that the church needs to hear again and again, and, and its leaders need to hear again and again. What we believe matters 100%, absolutely. But it's just as important that we connect what we, what we believe with how we actually live, that we live lives of integrity that reflect both, both personal and social morality. And so the words that Jeremiah closes our passage with this morning are words that are then taken up by Jesus in his own famous temple sermon, where he declares that his own contemporaries had turned the temple into a den of robbers. And by that he means this is literally like a criminal hideout. You're going out there, you're doing all this bad stuff, and then you're coming back here like highway robbers coming back to the house to, you know, count their loot. It's a place where people hide from responsibility rather than face it. And Jesus will have nothing to do with a religion or institutions that are about that. Yes, Jeremiah, he is a prophet of doom and gloom, but he is a prophet who tells it like it is. John's an English teacher, so he loves words, and the word Jeremiah, 
right? That's when you tell some hard truths in a hard way. And, and throughout the history of the church, there's been some wonderful Jeremiah's. You can just Google David Walker's appeal. This was given in, in, in America, uh, in antebellum America. And this is a, a beautiful Christian screed against the institution of slavery. And there's something very, very, very refreshing about people who tell it like it is. Because we desire honesty. And, and we want someone who won't hide behind pious cliches and platitudes. And who believe, yes, that God is going to win in the end. But it's not going to be all sunshine and rainbows in the present. And so God gave Jeremiah hard words to speak. You know, four of the six things that he says, you're going to tell them, you're going to tear down and pluck up and overthrow and destroy. That's not fun to give that message. But also God gives him a beautiful message of hope that after this, God is going to build and plant again. And God gave Jeremiah this beautiful vision of a new covenant where, 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 where he's going to write the law on people's hearts. And the same Jeremiah who said, in effect, you know, this aggression will not stand is the same prophet who shared what our God's probably most beloved words spoken through him and, and words that you wouldn't picture coming from someone who, who has this harsh word like Jeremiah. And this is Jeremiah 29, 11. Many a person's life verse, right? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And when you understand the person and the world where that's coming from, they're much, much more powerful because they're not a cliche. They are not a platitude. They are words of light spoken in the midst of darkness. And so may we put our hope not in buildings, not in cliches, not in beloved pieties, but solely in Christ's faithfulness. Let us trust in him. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please pray with me.